We are back with you here on the Punch-Out 2-19-2021, Friday into the week edition of the Punch-Out. Plenty for you here, as we always do. Going to be talking about how pork plants here in the United States are more dangerous than ever for their workers and, well, also consumers, too. We're going to be talking about police dogs biting thousands of people over the past several years. It's a much more frequent occurrence than you might think. But before we get to either of those two stories, we're going to start with Joe Biden's fake negotiations with Iran. We have lost our standing in the region. We have lost the support of our allies. The next president has to be able to pull those folks back together, reestablish our alliances, and insist that Iran go back into the agreement, which I believe with the pressure applied as we put on before, we can get done. Well, that was the now President Joe Biden speaking during last year's Democratic primary debates making the case for forcing Iran back into the Iran nuclear deal. And if we look at recent statements from the Biden administration, it seems that forcing Iran back into some sort of deal seems to be exactly what they're doing. Calling it rejoining the deal is really a misnomer when you look at the actual negotiating position here. Yesterday, Secretary of State Tony Blinken announced the U.S. wants to reopen negotiations around the Iran nuclear deal. And what the New York Times deemed to be, quote, a series of moves intended to make good on one of President Biden's most significant campaign promises, end quote. And they link that uh, to the announcement, these other series of moves, the announcement that the U.S. is dropping its completely absurd claim that it could unilaterally reimpose U.N. sanctions, something that, of course, no one in the United Nations, no other country agreed with, and the announcement that the U.S. is open to Iran receiving an emergency IMF loan to deal with COVID-19 emergency measures and other things of that nature. The bottom line here is that the Times is, in fact, wrong. And in fact, what seems to clearly be happening, even when you read the rest of the facts they write down, the Biden administration is really trying to have its cake and eat it, too. They're saying that they want to negotiate, but their own conditions suggest that they are clearly not negotiation, negotiate, negotiating, ooh, and negotiating there in good faith. And they may even be trying to offer a fate accompli to tank the negotiations. Now, first and foremost, the U.S. is saying that they won't go back to the original deal and that they want any new deal to be based on further restrictions to Iran's missile program and foreign policy activities. Limits, by the way, that are only one way. No restrictions on the U.S. of any sort at all. So it's just about what Iran is doing. But ultimately, this is an absolute non-starter for Iran. They have said this multiple times. The original deal was quite stringent, but it's really more than just that, not that they don't want to give more in the most general sense, but limits on ballistic missile programs. It sounds good, right? It makes you think, oh, you're preventing nuclear weapons. But what it really also means is a major limit on the science and technology of rocketry, which of course is a big impact on Iran's economic development and plays an important role in science and technological development of all sorts uh, that can help improve the lives of the population there. And further, they are obviously not willing to trade 
betrayed their core foreign policy goals just for the right of not being sanctioned to death. Let's remember here, sanctions primarily have to hurt average people, not the richest people. So that's what that is about. The U.S. is basically saying to Iran, we don't want you to have satellites or your own foreign policy. And if you want to avoid your children starving and dying for want of food and medicine, well, then you got to make the deal on the basis that we say, not the original deal. Now, the second issue here in terms of what the U.S. is, you know, putting out here as a negotiating position is they're insisting that Iran come back to in compliance with the deal, quote unquote, before anything happens on the U.S. side. And you know, absurdly, the New York Times article reported this issue as if there were two sides saying, quote, that Iran had, quote, unabashedly compiled and enriched nuclear fuel beyond the limits negotiated in the 2015 agreement. Its leaders, it's being Iran, have accused the United States of being the first to violate its terms. As if somehow there's any doubt that the U.S. was the first to violate the terms of the deal, or that it was not widely documented that Iran was in compliance while the U.S. and the EU were out of compliance with the deal. What are they supposed to do? Just continue abiding by a deal the most powerful countries refuse to support and cooperate with, regardless of what they signed on to, where Iran would then get zero of the benefits that they had agreed to take these actions for? Iran is saying that they are willing to return to compliance, but that they want the U.S. as a sign of good faith, after clearly dealing in bad faith, just pulling out of the deal to do something, relax some sanctions, take some sort of step that shows that they themselves are willing to be in compliance with the deal, which would have actually traded the lifting of sanctions for compliance on the nuclear fuel issue that the U.S. is raising now. And just to add even more to this, the U.S. has been further saying that they want in future talks to have Iran and Russia at the table. Now, they're, of course, also party to the deal, but they also were in compliance. They tend to agree with Iran's position on it, not the U.S. And, you know, quite as it's kept, also the position of the EU on some of these issues like uh, suspension of missiles. And so ultimately, you add them to the mix, it's more likely that the talks will ultimately deadlock. So when you put all this together, it seems like the Biden administration doesn't really want to return to the deal. They just want the perception to be that they want to return to the deal and that they're acting diplomatically and they're building the case for blaming the lack of the return on the deal, return to the deal on Iranian hardliners. Clearly, they want to continue a Trump-like policy, maybe not quote-unquote maximum pressure, but certainly enough pressure to try to force enough suffering in the country to make Iran capitulate to ceasing to have independent policies domestically or externally, which again is the upshot of the Biden proposal here on what they need to return to the deal. It's remarkably cynical. It's honestly very clear, though. But the reality here is that Iran has been consistent on this, whether people want to admit it or not. They signed the deal. They complied with the deal. They've been the most active on seeking diplomatic solutions with all sides. What's really holding back the Iran deal is the intransigence of the U.S. security establishment that is loath to pursue any strategy other than total domination when it comes to the broader region. Well, when it comes to police terror, we hear about beatings and shootings, but we don't hear a lot about how the police have turned dogs into major attack weapons in many cities. 
police dogs biting people and seriously injuring them is more frequent than I think, certainly I thought, and that probably many people thought. There's actually thousands of people every year. This is being revealed by new research from the Marshall Project that has shed uh, a lot of light on this. And most recently, they released a piece this week detailing how Baton Rouge, Louisiana seems to be the biggest outlier, the worst offender, perhaps, in using dogs as weapons. And they note that, quote, between 2017 and 2019, Baton Rouge police dogs bit at least 146 people. Of those, 53 were 17 years old or younger. 53 were 17 years old or younger out of 146. The youngest bitten was 13 years old. Almost all of the people bitten were black and most were unarmed and suspected of police, suspected by police of nonviolent crimes like driving a stolen vehicle or burglary. They go on to further note that, quote, the Baton Rouge Police Department is an extreme outlier compared with many other police agencies across the country in how often it uses dogs to pursue, to subdue people of all ages, and in particular, how often its dogs bite teenagers. Once every three weeks on average. So between 2017 and 2019, 146 people bitten by police dogs in Baton Rouge. 53 were 17 years old or younger. Some of them as young as 13. They're almost all black, unarmed, and suspected of ultimately very minor crimes. And every, essentially once every three weeks, a teenager is being bitten on average. Wow. Now, worth noting here that black people are only about half the population of Baton Rouge, but 90% of the adults and all but two of the children bitten by police dogs in Baton Rouge were black. And the research noted even further that, quote, in an overwhelming majority of cases, there was no evidence the people bitten by canines posed a grave threat. Their reporting also revealed that uh, and this is more broadly in the country here, it just shows you how big of a deal it is, that police dogs sent roughly 3,600 people to emergency rooms each year, each year from 2005 to 2013. 3,600 people go to emergency rooms every year between 2005 and 2013 from police dog bites. A woman's scalp was torn in California. A man's vocal cords were damaged in Colorado. An Arizona man's face was ripped off. And in 2018 in Montgomery, Alabama, a man died after being bitten by a police dog. He bled out after the bite. That's how it happened. The issue of dogs being used in the most minor of cases, as we mentioned in Baton Rouge, also a national issue too. The Marshall Project reporting found that, quote, the dogs are frequently used in minor cases like traffic violations, shoplifting, mental health checks, trespassing, and running from the police, end quote. And they also noted that while the incidents happen all over the country, they seem to be used as a tactic in particular places. So some places have almost none. Others, it is a very frequent occurrence. And some of the worst offenders in that regard, Baton Rouge, we mentioned, Los Angeles, Indianapolis, and Jacksonville, Florida. Wow. 3,600 people sent to emergency rooms every single year from 2005 to 2013 from police dog bites. It's sadly enough, it fits the pattern of brutal racist policing all around this country. Maybe even more disgusting that they're turning dogs into weapons in many of these places, but it really just offers us a deeper look at the systematic violence meted out by U.S. police officers day in and day out. <laughs> Well, we reported to you a couple weeks back about a big win for workers in the meatpacking industry when the Biden administration decided to roll back Trump-era regulations allowing reckless and extremely dangerous speed-ups on production lines. We asked on the Punch-Out then if the Biden administration would take similar action in the pork processing realm. We now have our answer. 
they will not. In a story from Reuters today, the USDA noted that they will not roll back the total elimination of line speeds rule that came as a part of the implementation of the so-called New Swine Inspection System, or NSIS, in 2019. And the anecdotal evidence shows that exactly what one would expect to happen, that an already dangerous job would get more dangerous, is indeed what has happened. As Reuters reported, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, conducted 27 inspections at non-poultry meat plants in 2020 due to either a fatality or a catastrophe, up from one in 2017, three in 2018, and five in 2019. Again, 27 inspections at non-poultry meat plants in 2020 due to a fatality or catastrophe, five in 2019. It's worth remembering in this regard that even before the line speed up, pork plant workers were injured at rates that are more than 2.4 times higher than the national average for all industries. And the rate is nearly three times higher for those injuries that require workers to lose time from work or restrict their duties. And it's also clear why this is happening. The USDA bent to the pressure for big meat packers looking to make more money. As the National Employment Law Project points out, quote, the USDA calculates the economic benefits of the proposal in terms of higher profit for pork processing companies. Assuming establishments increase their line speeds by 12.4% and have a packer margin of $4.10 per head, an average large establishment surplus could increase by approximately $2 million, end quote. There's also clear evidence that increased line speeds spiked COVID-19 transmission. The seaboard pork plant in Oklahoma, for instance, was speeding up its lines early in the virus and hundreds of its workers got COVID-19. And just one example of how meatpacking plants were really some of the biggest super spreaders. They were all running flat out. And in the pork realm, a lot of this had to do with the total elimination of line speeds. It gets even deeper than this, though. According to the rules, you can only eliminate line speeds totally if you keep the plant up to certain health and safety levels. However, another part of this new swine inspection system was a change to allow plants to do more of the inspections themselves. Yes, that's right, to investigate themselves. And just this week as well, new information was released on the pilot version of that program. Why the pilot is com the information is coming out after they've you know, finalize the rule is a whole other issue. But nevertheless, the information is now out. And what it found was that uh, in the plants where they were doing the pilot program, there were more than double the number, more than double the number of violations. Mm. But nevertheless, they adopted that rule anyway in 2019 as a part of this NSIS. And so you can see just right there, a clear connection between the profit-making just murderous line speed increases, the health and safety issues at the plants themselves, which heavily affect consumers, of course, and COVID-19 super spreader events. If you're not keeping the plant clean for anything else, you're not keeping it clean for COVID. It's just yet another example of how the extremes of capital accumulation have facilitated the devastating growth of the pandemic in the United States. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. 
It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at 